What type of view of God do you have? Are there maybe some good and not so good ways to understand who God is? What type of view would you personally hold? I think there's a number of different views, not all of them good. I think one view is God is like the Amazon delivery person. You just put your order in, you want it quickly, and bam, you get what you want, he delivers. I think secondly, God can oftentimes be viewed as a grandparent. They're nice, they're old, um, they seem a, a bit irrelevant and out of touch, but they're just the grandparent type of God that we have in our life. Another way of looking at God is he's a distant friend. He's the friend that maybe you grew up with, but as you got older, you moved away, you sort of lost touch with one another. If anything, you have a relationship of convenience, and maybe occasionally you connect. Another view is God is a cruel father. You've experienced pain and wounds and disappointment in your life. And you just feel like God has truly been unfair to you and he's hurt you. Maybe even worse is a view of God as an abandoning father. He once was there, but now he just seems absent. And you just say, God, where are you? I thought you were going to be with me. I thought you were going to walk with me. And you just say, I have no idea where God is. Let me add two others. I think some of us can view God as a harsh judge. It's his job to punish us when we've messed up, when we've broken the law, we've not lived up to his standard. And he's just this scowling, harsh judge that wants to execute judgment on us. And then here's the last view, and that's the view of God as a good, good, sovereign father. Where God is loving, he's merciful, he's full of grace, he's the one that delights in relationship with his children, and that God seeks to always draw us to himself. And he's truly the one who's the Lord of all of life. Not just our own lives, but the life outside of us in this world that we live in. My question to you is, which view of God do you have? Well, before we step in the book of Joel, I just want to take a moment to pray, sort of adding to what Jonah prayed in light of these views. Would you join me? Father God, I would think with the number of people in this room, there's probably a lot of different views of you represented in here tonight. And we would ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, you'd open our eyes, open our ears to hear what you have to say to us through this prophet Joel. And Lord, would you meet us? Would your Holy Spirit just have great freedom here tonight to speak to us? And we're just so grateful to have the privilege to be together. And we pray this in your name. Amen. The book of Joel is a minor prophet. And it's a fascinating picture of who God is 
and that he takes sin very seriously and that he judges sin and rebellion and spiritual idolatry and what Sam talked about in terms of spiritual adultery very seriously. But in his judgment, his judgment is always to draw us to repentance and returning to him as well as offering promise to restore us. Those are the themes that we're going to see in this book of Joel. Now, we don't know a lot about Joel. When you read the first couple of verses, it doesn't tell us a whole lot. We know that the Joel, the word, the, the name Joel means the Lord is God. He's the son of Pethuel. That's all we know about him. We do know he's a prophet in Judah when King Uzziah was the king. And that would place his, his time as a prophet in the late 7th century, early 8th century B.C. We also know it's a time in the life of God's people in Judah of pretty good prosperity. And there's expansion that's happening underneath King Uzziah. But in the midst of that, God's people begin to forget God. They begin to drift from God. They begin to be guilty of worshiping idols. They begin to have wave after wave of sin and moral decay that's going on. And this time, the book begins with a judgment that God has brought upon the people of Israel. And it's this thing called a locust plague. A locust plague that just devastates the land and results in the people just being broken. And in the midst of this plague, Joel declares to the people that you are being judged by God and he's calling you to repent and to return to the Lord. And then in the book, he talks about how God is going to restore them. We'll talk a little more about that in just a moment. Now, before we actually get into the text of Joel, I want us to understand one really critical phrase in the book of Joel that's repeated a number of times. It's this phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now, in the day of the Lord, it's this powerful and even daunting phrase and reality that certainly God's people would understand but also it's a phrase that applies to the world, as we'll see, the nations and the people. So the day of the Lord is a time when God judges the nations and the people who oppose God, as well as a time where God brings forth this call for repentance, return to me, and I will give you the promise of restoration. But the day of the Lord is this fearful day, because they know this is when the wrath, the judgment of God will be poured out on people. Now, at this point, the day of the Lord can be applied in a partial sense to certain events and the life of God's people, and certainly in the time of Joel, that was true. So, as we'll see, Joel speaks of the day of the Lord as referring to these locust plagues that have happened already to Israel. But then he's going to talk about another day of the Lord, a partial sense of the day of the Lord, 
that's going to happen soon in the future with this army, the Assyrian army that will come and invade their land and basically take them captive. And then finally you'll see that Joel speaks of this this final judgment that's going to take place when Christ returns. So the day of the Lord is something that we're going to see woven through this book of Joel. Let's see how God unfolds it. If you have your Bibles, turn to Joel chapter 1, and on your handout, the first point we're going to talk about is the reality of judgment. The reality of judgment. So I've already described the fact that there is this locust plague, but listen to how specific Joel describes this locust plague. He just doesn't use the word locust. He uses multiple Hebrew terms that describe all different types of locusts. So look at Joel chapter 1, verse 4. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locusts have left, the stripping locusts have eaten. Oh my golly. Nothing's left. Now, I've never been in a locust plague. But when Connie and I were in high school back in Illinois, it was the 14-year cycle of what was called the cicadas. And cicadas are a form of, of grasshopper locusts. And the interesting thing is, when Connie and her sister were riding back from town, literally this swarm of locusts hit them, and Connie said she used her hand to cover her face. Connie's sister fell off her bike. She was just so freaked out by these things. Well, I was doing a landscaping business at that time, and I remember one property. We, you want to trim around trees when you're doing a, a mowing of the yard? There was two feet of locust cicada carcasses. And I just lowered that mower, mower on them. Just gone. I didn't want to bag those things. That's the closest I've ever come to a locust plague. But did you hear all these different types of locusts that have come upon the land? And if we were to read through all of chapter 1, we would see the devastating effects of those locusts. And then Joel calling people to repentance. We'll come back to that. Now let's move into chapter 2. We've had this judgment that's already happened of the locust plague and Joel calling people to repent and to return. But now in chapter 2, and I need you to look at your notes and bring, grab a pen because, or a pencil because I left out um, a phrase. You'll see Joel's day of the Lord's judgment, a locust plague. Would you add and an army? So what's happening here in Joel chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 4 through 11, Joel is describing in chapter 2 both what's happened with these locusts and what's going to happen, a future judgment of God upon his people, not with a natural dis, uh, disaster of locusts, but a political crisis of an invading army that is going to come and just wreak havoc upon the land and God's people. And we know in history 
that was actually the Assyrian army that came and invaded Judah. Now, turn with me to chapter 2, and let's listen to this description of this army that's coming. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, so they run. With a noise of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Does that not sound like an army of soldiers? But it could also be those locusts. Let's see what else. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers. And they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. That's an army, but that's also locusts just ongoing, just marching. Nothing stops them. They go up, over, in. They do not crowd, verse 8, they do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. Well, soldiers can do that, but so can locusts. And they enter the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Verse 11, so key. And the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Now remember, we talked about the day of the Lord is this judgment that God brings upon people and the nations and even Israel. And here, Joel is saying that not only the locust plague that you've experienced, Judah, but this army that's coming, that's described in a very similar way as those locusts, they're coming and you're going to feel like this is the day of the Lord. This dreadful, awful day where you just want to hide. And this is the great, holy Yahweh God bringing judgment upon the people of God because of their sin, their rebellion, their idolatry. So, interestingly, when you look at this reality of judgment as spoken of in Joel, you have this past judgment of the locust plague. Then you have this near future of this locust of the army, the Assyrian army coming and basically conquering God's people and taking them to exile. And then you have this future judgment that's coming. Let's take a look at what's called the I have in my notes the final day of the Lord judgment where Jesus returns as the Lion of Judah. Can I pause for a moment? Today in the church, you read the book of Revelation and other things, you understand Jesus as the Lamb of God who sacrificed himself. And we just so celebrate what Jesus has done for us. But there's coming a day, and the scriptures talk and prophesy that this Lamb of God is going to return as the lion of Judah. That's this idea of Jesus Christ coming to judge the nations 
and to judge the people who opposed him, as well as to bring forth deliverance of God's people and the future of Israel and the reign of God eternally. Now, take a look to chapter 3, if you would. Here's this incredible description of this final day of the Lord. Chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I, the Lord, will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. I love this verse. It's frightening. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. Do you get this picture? But the Lord is a refuge for his people. There's that deliverance, that salvation. And a stronghold of the sons of Israel. Fascinating word, the valley of Jehoshaphat. It literally means the valley of judgment. Or the valley of decision. Now if you fast forward, as this being spoken of here in Joel, 700 years before Christ, you now go to the book of Revelation And you now have Satan and the nations and the armies coming against Christ himself in this area of Jerusalem. And there's this valley, the Bible calls it Armageddon. It's the same concept here, the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of judgment. Jesus Christ will come in the future to this place for the final battle of Armageddon to defeat Satan himself, his demons, as well as the nations and those who opposed him. And this is being prophesied, spoken of here. That's that final, sort of ultimate day of the Lord judgment that's coming. So it's a little mind-boggling trying to get your head around this idea. Here's this judgment of the locust plague. Here's this judgment of, of the Syrian army coming upon Judah. But then here's this final judgment that will happen at the end of the age when Jesus Christ returns. My brothers and sisters, that's the reality of judgment that Joel speaks of. But that's not the only theme. Now, because God takes sin so seriously and he desires his people to be a holy people, that when judgment happens... He calls us to repent and return. If you want to put that into your notes. The call to repent and return. Go back to Joel chapter 1. I love this. Joel chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. Give us this picture of repentance or repenting. Gird yourself with sackcloth and lament, O priest, Wail, O ministers of the altar, come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the libation or drink offering are withheld from the house of God. Consecrate a fast, 
Proclaim a solemn assembly of prayer. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And what? Cry out to the Lord. Men and women, this idea of repentance, and you might maybe seen this so often as it's described, literally repentance means you're walking in one direction and you literally turn away. You turn around. It's a 180 degree turn to walk in a new direction. But in Joel, you not only have this call for repentance, but the, you feel this sense of lament, this deep grieving over just the condition, not just in the land that's just been decimated by locusts. It's in a drought. There's no food. There's nothing. And God says to his people, you need to repent. You need to mourn. You need to put sackcloth and ashes on. That's what repentance is. It's saying, God, I'm so sorry. Well, look at now what it means to return to the Lord. In Joel chapter 2, turn just a little ahead in your scriptures. God says this to his people through the prophet Joel. He says this, verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. You hear that grieving there? Rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. What a powerful phrase and just picture that God's saying, I I don't want outward, just superficial, oh God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry this has caused so much trouble. No, there's a brokenness. There's being undone where you just don't rent. And in the time of Israel, when there was a grievous sin or grievous moment, people would just rend or tear their garments. Okay, It happened when Jesus was on trial with the Pharisees and he declared himself to be God and the high priest rend or he tore his garment. And God says, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for your heart to be so torn, so broken. And because of that condition, he says, return to me. Return to me. Now I ask a good question. Why should we return? This harsh judge, this abandoning father, this cruel father, is that who God is? Not what the scripture says. This is amazing, men and women. Look at the last two phrases of verse 13. For he, God, is gracious, <laughs> compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Some of you need to hear that tonight. Because that's not how you have either experienced or viewed God. You've been in one or more of those unhealthy views. And when you hear those words, you're hearing this amazing description of our good, good, sovereign Father who loves his children enough to allow judgment, enough to allow consequences of life to come into our life to help bring us back to him to a place of repentance and returning to him. Mm. Well, I want to take you a fascinating verse. 
that captures both concepts of repenting and returning Lord. Would you turn ahead to the book of Acts? Book of Acts chapter 2. We're going to drop into Peter's message, his sermon, in Acts chapter 2. And I want to read verse 19. In fact, I'm sorry, Acts 3, my bad. Acts 3, 19. I'm reading from the New American Standard. I want you to listen carefully to the words. Peter's preaching to this crowd. And he says, repent therefore and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Oh my golly, what a great passage. How do we experience this idea of refreshment from God? It says, repent and return. Now, Joel says the same thing. Don't you love how the scriptures, the word of God, integrates together? But I want to share something with you. I had the privilege of being a part of a number of high school winter retreats in Colorado when Connie and I lived there. And always on Saturday night, there would be this marvelous message and an opportunity for kids to respond to Jesus Christ, either to give their lives to them, to cross the line of faith, or to renew or rededicate themselves. And I just watched so many kids go forward. And we were so excited. And we got on that bus Sunday to go back home, and we're just so excited for what what type of commitments and demonstrations. But here's what I saw. I saw kids who would go forward and be so serious about getting right with Jesus, and two weeks later, they're back in the same stuff. And two months later, he didn't even know they had been on a retreat. Here's what I think happened. The scriptures make it clear that repentance is what? Walking in one direction and turning around and going another direction. But you know what I observed with so many high school students? They would go to these spiritual highs, these winter retreats. They want to get right with God. They turn around, but guess what? They didn't return. They didn't start walking in a different direction. They turned around, and what happened? The temptation, the friends, what have you, and they pulled them back. And I watch kids too often just do this in circles. Oh, i got to get right with Jesus. Oh, I'm going to start a new one. And all their back. And I think it's so powerful that the scriptures say that not only is a man or woman to repent when they cross the line of faith and turn away from the old life in the old ways, but then you start walking, returning where? To the Lord. You're coming back home. Do you see that? That's what it means to follow Jesus. And maybe some of you are like those high school students, but you ain't in high school anymore. But maybe all you've been doing is just turning. And tonight the Lord says, you have to return to me. Just take one step. One step. I get excited about that. All right. The last thing I want to share is that God does not only call us to repent and return, but he offers us this amazing promise of restoration restoration. I'd like you to turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 describes 
this amazing effort of God to restore the people of Judah now. In the hearing of these people who've been devastated by these locusts. And here's what God says to his people through Joel. Starting with verse 21. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad. For the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. You hear new life there? For the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the house of your Lord. For he's given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. This is speaking of this amazing provision of God in the land, in the rain that ends the drought, in the produce, in the vines, and the fruit trees. God is saying, I'm going to produce and give you restoration of what those locusts have eaten. Now, not only does God speak of this restoration in the time of, of Joel, but he speaks of this restoration of a future and final restoration. But before we go to the passage in Joel that I have down there for you in chapter 3, we've got to go to the end of chapter 2 with this amazing description of God's restoration. Go to Joel chapter 2, verse 28. God says, and it will come about after this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. God is saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit in a future day. I'll come back to that in just a moment. And then he goes on to say, And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Is that just weird? That's sort of scary stuff. But this is now describing the day of the Lord. And Jesus picks it up when he starts talking about the end times and what's going to happen in the celestial body and across the earth. Keep reading with me. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Joel is predicting God's deliverance, his salvation. For on Mount Zion and Jerusalem there will be those who escape that day of the Lord, that judgment of the nations. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Wow. And what is Joel speaking of? He's speaking about this amazing moment in time in history when the Son became flesh, lived amongst this earth a perfect life, gave us a picture of who God the Father is and what a relationship with Him is. Then He lived a perfect life, became the perfect sacrifice, died for our sins, and was resurrected to defeat death and to give us a sense of eternity with God. That's amazing. That's the good news. That's the gospel. But here's something that happened that Joel said would happen. Jesus, when he left the ascension, days later, these fearful people are just huddled in the upper room. And something happens in the room. These tongues of fire begin to happen. And I, I, have, I can't imagine this, but the Holy Spirit was poured out upon those people. 
And they actually began to speak in different languages. And it was nine in the morning and people were accusing them of being drunk. And that's what sets up Peter's famous message in Acts chapter 2, where he quotes what I just read to you. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 31. Verbatim, and says, what you're seeing, men and women, this Holy Spirit is what Joel spoke about, that God would pour out his Spirit upon his people. And that's what birthed the church. I've got to just take a moment and just make a couple comments about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not a thing. It's not Casper the friendly ghost. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the triune God. When a man and woman crosses the line of faith and enters into a relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ supernaturally, this is a mystery, folks, by the Holy Spirit indwells our life. His life enters our life, and the Spirit of God enters our life. Now, why is it so important that the Holy Spirit enters our life at the moment of our crossing the line of faith? Because the Spirit of Jesus connects us to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that was 2,000 years ago. In other words, I can experience all that Jesus was in his earthly ministry 2,000 years ago today because the Holy Spirit is the very power and person of God in my life. Can I illustrate it? The Holy Spirit is power. Boom, baby. Ah, where is that? Why did that fall? Huh? Gravity. Did you see gravity? No. You saw the object influenced by gravity, this power that pushes things down to the earth. I, I haven't seen the Holy Spirit, but I've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in my life with the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, an uncanny sense of God's presence, and on and on. One more, if you don't mind. My flashlight. I put new batteries in it so you could see it. Oh, well, that's pretty bright. How you doing, Con? Wake up, Connie. <laughs> okay, those batteries have what? Electricity. Do you see the electricity? No, you see the effects of electricity. Oh, ooh, strobe lighting. Okay, you see the effects of electricity right there. Amazing. Now, that's what this restoration, this final restoration, is Jesus entering our world, giving us the Holy Spirit that's here tonight, as well as the person of Jesus. But then, take a look at this incredible final restoration as we conclude Joel here. Take a look at Joel chapter 3, verses 17 and 20. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. That will only happen when Jesus returns. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. This is God's people, God's dwelling, the new Jerusalem. Go down to verse 20. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. Wow. 
I have to take you back to one passage I missed purposely. Go to Joel chapter 2, verse 25. This God who restores through Jesus coming, the Holy Spirit, and the anticipation of this final time when Jesus rule and reign in the new Jerusalem, that is the restoration. But I, I want you to read verse 25 of Joel chapter 2. Then I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, and the gnawing locusts. Oh, my friends. I don't fully understand this, but God says, I am in a broad way. I am in this long term. You've experienced this difficulty, this challenge, this terribly long season. And I'm promising you to restore what the locusts have eaten. I'm not certain why God doesn't do that all the time. But it has become one of the most powerful prayers of my life. Beginning with myself, but even more importantly for others. Some of you were um, at Young Adults in the last year or so when I gave my story, my testimony. And you heard that I've had four mothers. When my parents divorced in 63, my mom did not want my brothers to die, so my dad got custody. And when my dad died 25 years ago, um, he was on his fourth marriage. I have to tell you, as a high school kid, I was so disillusioned. I had no hope with this thing called a relationship with a woman. I had not seen a clue of what healthy marriage was. I hadn't stepped into a church all my life. All I knew was the pain and the alcoholism and the fighting and the just abyss of this thing called marriage. And then Jesus Christ ambushed me as a junior in high school. And I began to hear about this thing called a marriage that God has designed, where Jesus is at the center. I began to meet men and women in the church who had something so different than what I grew up with. And I just, oh, I just wanted it. But I have to tell you, Connie and I dated five years. That's a long time. And I have to tell you, she was a year ahead of me, so junior year, she's a senior. She asked me, um, eh, any future here? And I was just paralyzed. I was just so fearful. I just couldn't make that commitment. And two things happened. One was her pressing me and saying, I need to know where we're going here, boy wonder. And then my best buddy, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, lost his fiance in a car accident. And I flew down that night, and Dave just said, I want to die and be with Bev. And I spent two, three of the longest and most beautiful days of my life with my dear friend. I remember calling Connie from Dulles International Airport and says, I don't know what God's doing, but we need to really seek the Lord for our future. And we got engaged. And by the grace of God, we will celebrate our 44th wedding anniversary. Not because we are so good, we figured it out, because Jesus restored the years that locusts had eaten in my growing up. That's what he does. Oh, that's so great. That's good news. And tonight I'm going to ask you and your small groups to maybe share 
a story where you've had a years of pain, of separation, whatever it is, and God has restored some of that. I wish he would do it every time. Every prayer I pray doesn't happen. All right, I'm getting long, so we got to close with these three prayers. Take a look at your notes. I'm going to have you fill it in. It's beautiful. Here's our three desperate prayers tonight that I'm going to end praying over you. Take a look at your notes. I'm going to have you fill it in. Oh, Lord, move me, move us to repent and return. Just what the text has said in my main point. But that's our prayer. Please, Lord, break my heart for what breaks your heart. Second, oh, Lord, we want more of your Holy Spirit, comma, pour out, hear those words in Joel, pour out your spirit. Men and women, if you are St. Fritz, I've never really thought about the Holy Spirit, really clueless, or you've just, here's the one prayer. Lord, would you give me more of your spirit? I challenge you to pray that every day this week and watch what God does. I just want more. And then finally, oh Lord, would you restore the years that the locusts have eaten? So as we conclude, these three desperate prayers, who are they for? They're for Fritzdale. They're for each of us. That Lord, move us to repent and return. And then we just cry out, Lord, please give more. Please restore the year of the locusts. But it's not just for me and you. It's for our, our families and our marriages. It's for our churches that right now I think are just desperately trying to figure out what it's going to mean to be the church in a very difficult season. And how powerful would it be if we prayed these three prayers for our country of, of repenting and returning to the Lord. God, just pour out more of yourself in the midst of our land. And then, Lord, I'll restore what the years the locusts have eaten. Thanks for letting me share my heart. Can I close this in prayer? Well, Jesus, thank you so much for this amazing book that speaks so powerfully of who you are, of the day of the Lord, of your holiness and judgment, but also of your compassion and mercy that just calls us and drives us back to you. And then this pouring out of your spirit, oh Lord, we ask for more tonight. We ask for a broken and contrite heart. And for many of my friends, may tonight their prayer be, oh Lord, please restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And they know exactly where to apply that. So Jesus, we commit what you've given us tonight to you. Now just live in our small groups, please. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.